Hey, doll. Hey, doll. I'm your host, Cynthia. And I'm your host, Paula. And we are Dolls Dolls and Doom. Doom. Well, a couple weeks ago, Paula, uh, when we were talking about the Girl Scout murders, I mentioned that there had been several documented investigations that had been solved by psychics. That's right. It got me thinking. I should tell some psychic detective stories. I like that. Yeah. So I have three stories for you today. So the first is the case of John DeMars. On December 20th, 1974, a 30-year-old man named John DeMars left his job as a banker at the Chemical Bank in Manhattan and he walked toward a train station to make his commute to his New Jersey home. Now John was a very happily married man, he had two young children, and it sounds like he was just an all-around great husband. He was the type of man who, if he saw that he was going to be getting home a little late for some reason, he would always make sure to call his wife, give her a heads up, um, you know, let her know he's going to be a few minutes late. He was not the type of guy who was going to lose track of time and keep her waiting. So he boards the train after his long work day, but when the train made his stop, John didn't get off. So time starts ticking by and John never comes home. Minutes turn to hours, turn to days, and John never comes home. It's like he just disappeared. So he's obviously reported as a missing person, and the police initially thought that he must have found himself in some sort of trouble and just ran away. They suspected that he may have embezzled some money or even had a lover who he'd ran away with, but those theories were discounted pretty quickly as there was absolutely zero evidence to point to him having been involved in anything like that. They also couldn't find any evidence of foul play. It literally seemed as if he had just walked off the face of the earth. So after doing as much as he could with the investigation, a very frustrated Detective Sal Lubertazzi decided he had nothing to lose and he was going to implore the help of a psychic to see if maybe that might possibly provide some answers. So he contacted psychic Dorothy Allison from New Jersey to help with the case. Now Dorothy was a married woman with four children and she first realized that she might have some psychic abilities when she was only 14 years old and she actually predicted the death of her father. Her dad had been perfectly healthy, but Dorothy, out of the blue, had a premonition that he was going to die from pneumonia and shortly after, he caught pneumonia and died. By the time Dorothy was contacted for this case, she'd actually worked with the police on hundreds of other investigations and she would be the first to admit that in some cases, she wasn't able to provide any answers, but in many of the investigations, she was able to give some insight and actually help solve the case. Dorothy told Detective Lubertazzi that John had fallen off of the train and drowned. Detective Lubertazzi felt that this was a pretty far-fetched theory, and he wasn't buying it, but he did keep pressing her for clues. She went on to say that she saw a stack of tires, a little park where children go down the hill on their sleds, the numbers 2, 2, and 2, and a bow and arrow. But even with all of these clues, detectives were not able to find John. 
Two months after John went missing, a man and his son were doing archery practice on the shore of the Passaic River, which ran along John's train route. One of the arrows missed the target and landed in shallow water, and when they went to collect the arrow, right there in the water, just a couple of feet from where the arrow had landed, was a decomposing body. It was John. Next to the river, there was a park where tires had been piled up to make a sled run. And any guesses as to what day his body was discovered? Oh, I'm going to guess 2-22. Exactly. February 22nd. 2-2-2. After finding his body, police were finally able to piece together what happened the night he disappeared. Apparently... John had fallen asleep on the train ride home. For some reason, the conductor had made an unscheduled stop while on the Passaic River Bridge and had opened the train doors. John, half asleep and in a daze, assumed that this was his stop and he stepped off the train, fell off the bridge, and drowned. Oh, poor guy. So tragic. And bizarre. Yeah. Like, why? Why would the conductor stop there? Right. I don't ride a lot of trains but it does seem weird to me that I didn't know they could like make unscheduled shop stops on top of a bridge I didn't either and you would think that at least maybe now there's some kind of automatic locking system if the doors are locked until the doctor comes to a complete scheduled stop unlocks the thing and then the doors open right it's very weird and yeah. then like I you know like a visual like did you just open the door and there's no landing you just step off and like you know what I mean right very strange. Now I'm going to tell you the story of another case that Dorothy worked on. But in this case, she was wrong. Maybe. Kind of. We're not sure. Okay. You tell me. This is the case of John Benet Ramsey. So if you are a true crime aficionado, you know all about this case. This is one I've considered covering in a standalone episode, but Honestly, so many other podcasts have covered this case and covered it really well, so I honestly don't know that there's anything I could add that hasn't already been reported, except for maybe this part of the case where a psychic was brought in to help, because I'd never heard that a psychic was brought in to help on this case, had you? No, I didn't. Me neither, not until I was doing this research. Interesting. I know. So the super short version of the story is... A six-year-old beauty queen was found murdered in her basement of her parents' home on Christmas morning. There was this, like, extremely long ransom letter, and that's very much not typical for ransom notes. They're normally very short and to the point. Right. And what did it say that made it so long? Uh, I, I'm sure, I think you can look up the whole letter, but I think it started off by, like, saying that the writer of the letter was like a member of a small foreign faction and they wanted like I know they mentioned that they wanted a certain amount of money and it was like almost exactly the amount I want to say it was like $118,000 and if I'm wrong I'm so sorry but I want to say it was like $118,000 which was almost exactly the amount of his Christmas bonus John's Christmas bonus gotcha okay so it's just like very bizarre I think it was like three or four pages long. Jeez, that is weird. Yeah. And it had been written actually on the stationery from inside the home. 
even more weird. Yeah. So whoever did this, whoever wrote this letter, they wrote it from inside inside the the house. And it's like a long letter. So that alone was just very strange. That's not typical. Right. But then there was also like this muddled 911 call where it sounds like a third voice is speaking in the background. And that didn't line up with the Ramsey's account of like who was in the room at the time of the call. Okay. Like they said that... Brock, their son, was asleep when they called 911, but you, you know, they've taken this call and they've cleaned it up and all that, and you can kind of hear, like, a third voice in the background that sounds like it could be a young child. Okay. So if he was awake and in the room, why would they Why wouldn't lie? you just why say lie? That? Yeah, why lie about that? Right. You know, that was weird. And then the family lawyered up, like, almost immediately, and they just exhibited this really strange behavior. For a family who had just lost their daughter. So even though they were never charged, the case remains unsolved. And thanks to these, among several other strange factors in the case, many people still believe that the parents are responsible for John Bonet's death. Well, Dorothy said that she felt in her gut that John and Pat Ramsey were innocent. And she actually drew a sketch of the person that she saw as the killer. And this sketch looked a lot like someone who would later confess to the murder. A school teacher named John Carr. Now, John Carr did not look like this drawing back in 1998 when Dorothy drew it. Back then, he had a full head of hair. But in 2006, when he confessed and was arrested for the murder, he had a receding hairline, and he looks almost exactly like the sketch. It's oh, weird. Un- it's really, I pulled it, it's so weird, yeah. But unfortunately, John Carr's confession was proven to be false, and he's actually been eliminated as a suspect. But for a while, it was wildly believed by authorities and the public that we had finally found the killer. So was Dorothy misdirected? Was she just plain wrong? Well, psychic believers say that it is possible with human error and as a receiver of information for her to have seen him confess, seen him being taken into custody. She could have picked up on all the media saying that they'd found the killer and pretty much the whole world believing that they'd caught their man and that that was what she was picking up on. And she just interpreted the information wrong. John Carr did know many intimate details of the crime which could have also pointed her in his direction. But he has been excluded with DNA evidence. Now, I think I should mention that in addition to falsely confessing to the murder, John Carr was also connected to child pornography charges, but those charges were later dropped. In 2007, John Carr was arrested again, this time for domestic violence, and he has also been suspected of starting a child sex cult. So... He's a bad guy. Yeah, he's looking like the right guy for this. Right? He looks good for it, except for the DNA. Right. I will say this. One of the reasons I believe this case has not been solved yet, and unfortunately may never be solved, is the JonBenet Ramsey case was a disaster. It's just, it's no secret that the crime scene was not protected. So many people traipsing in and out of the house. When she first went missing, John and Pat, they invited like a bunch of friends over. Yeah, and they were touching everything everything moving things cleaning someone was actually cleaning the kitchen right like this was not protected there was no preservation of evidence no chain of custody so knowing that i don't know how you could rule anyone in or out of a case with dna evidence when you know everything's been tainted right but unknown male dna was found in john benet's underwear 
and it did not match John Carr. That has been proven. So right or wrong, he's been excluded as the murderer. And keep in mind, we're not detectives. We just, you know, are very opinionated podcasters. True. (laughs) (laughs) But if he's been ruled out, he's probably not the guy. Dorothy also said of the John Benet Ramsey killer, quote, This man went unnoticed in the house. The Ramseys are not responsible for the death of the child. This is my true and honest belief. I keep seeing the man that took her. I keep seeing he had a problem. This much I can reveal to you. I know he had trouble with his hip and leg, and I'd like to kick the other one so that he can't walk at all. End quote. Now, whether or not John Carr had hip or leg problems is unknown, leading some people to believe that, in this case, she's probably picking up on the real killer. Okay, so remember Dorothy herself admitted that in some investigations, she was unable to provide any clues whatsoever? Well, in a lot of the cases where she got things wrong, her information actually appeared to just be more misdirected than outright inaccurate. I also want to add, for the sake of being really open-minded, that since we still don't know who John Monet's killer was, it is still possible that the real killer looks like Dorothy's sketch. And the fact that it also looks just like John Carr is an incredible coincidence. Dorothy died in 1999 before John Carr ever confessed or was arrested. So unfortunately, we cannot go back and ask her what she thinks of these developments. But hopefully one day we will know the truth of what happened to John Benet Ramsey. But probably not. For me, this case is like top 10 that I would love to see solved. It's just so strange, all the different facts and strange behaviors. Right. It's just totally bizarre. I know that I have a theory. Okay. What is it? Okay. Well, it does not match up with Dorothy's vision. Okay. I kind of think it was Brock. I do too. The brother. Yeah. Yeah. Even if it was by accident. I do. I, I don't, I think it was, you know, him being a child. Right. And I, there was a history he'd hit her before with something, mm-hmm. an object. I can't remember what. And, you know, my kids hit each other. And I think, you know, if he hit her with, like, just the right object, just the right amount of force, he could have, you know, fractured her skull. She had a skull fracture and then asphyxiation. Okay. So I think there's a good possibility that maybe he hit her and then, you know, in an effort to maybe cover it up. Her parents set the whole thing up. And God forgive me if I'm wrong, because that is a horrible accusation to make of two parents if they didn't do it. That's so horrible. Yeah. Especially because they would have had to, oh, you know, she had something tied around her neck. Right. I can't think of the word. What is that word? Garrote? I don't know. She was strangled very, very badly. And um, garrot. That's That's what it it is. Yeah. She had, like, this garrot, and it was, like, really, really bad. So... I don't know. Her parents did all that to her just to cover it up. That's the part that makes me think maybe it was somebody completely unrelated. Because I think to actually do that to your own child is pretty bizarre. Yeah, I would like to think that it's someone not related to her. But I can also understand the parents wanting to save their other child from going to prison. Yeah, but would he have gone to prison if he was... I don't remember how old he was, but if she was six, he was probably... Eight or nine, I'm guessing. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm not positive about the age difference. But, you know, being a kid, would you go to prison for doing that? I guess it depends on the, like, how bad it was. I would think he would at least go to some kind of juvenile mental hospital. 
if nothing else. Yeah. Until but, he was a certain age and then be put on trial. Well, I, if you hit your sister with something hard enough to fracture her skull, you probably should go to a hospital. Right. Because that's not checked normal out. behavior. Right. You know, or at least shouldn't be. He's, um, have you seen any of his adult interviews? No. He's, um, Dr. Phil interviewed him and he like smiles the whole time. Okay. But um, Dr. Phil even addressed it because, like, a, apparently a lot of people wrote in and were saying things like, there's something wrong with him. Yeah. And Dr. Phil was like, this is somebody who, you know, has seen a lot of trauma and been through a lot. And he has, you know, his mother died of cancer. Right. He was just like, this is almost like a nervous, it's like a nervous response kind of thing. Like, he doesn't, he's not smiling out of joy. He's just like, it's just like the look on his face. Right. He just has like a resting smile face. Okay, let me ask you this. Does mm-hmm. he have a receding hairline? Oh, I don't know. Does he, does he walk with a limp now? Oh, we need to Google that. We need to. Paula. Yeah. You may have just solved it. <laughs> oh, no. With the help of Dorothy. That's a. Oh, that is good. I don't know. We should look that up. Yeah. But, yeah. This case. Yeah. This Wouldn't you like to know? I mean, yes. is this one of those cases for you? That, Definitely. Like, you just, this is tough. I can't say number one because there's a few. There's quite a few that there's I'm like, so what happened? But this is one of them, for sure. Yeah. Okay, what's one of your cases? I would have to say the staircase. <gasps> I really want to know what happened. I do, too. I, yes. Do you have, what do you think happened? Okay, so there was a documentary. Mm-hmm. And then there was a follow-up documentary about the owl. Did you see that one? Yes. I'm, I'm buying it. I, I kind of feel like the owl did it. I think the owl did it. I think there's a very good chance the owl did it. I like the feathers in the hair. Or mm-hmm. I think that were the feathers in her hair or there in was, her hand. There was a, I believe there was a couple of feathers on the staircase. And the scratch marks in her skull were deep like talons would be able to do yes. that. Yes. It wasn't like a knife could do that. Right. Because I think there was more than one about the same length. Right. I don't think just to fall down the stairs... There's so much blood. I know when I first watched the documentary, like from episode one, when I first saw crime scene with the blood and everything, I was like, Mm -hmm. there is no way. This guy is guilty of sin. There's no (laughs) way this woman fell down the stairs and um, this happened. And there's this much blood. But by the end of the series, I, of course, was like, he's totally innocent. Yeah. But I have also heard that that was a very, like, skewed um, perspective. In fact, he even dated Michael Peterson. Actually, even dated one of the editors. I think on the documentary, the really? staircase, while they were filming and creating it. That's very interesting. So, I've heard it's not really a, you know, unbiased opinion. Okay. But just given what I know, I would say. The chances of an owl having done that are probably just as good as the chances of him having done that. Yeah. And unfortunately, we'll never know. Right. Now, do you think he was at all responsible for the first woman, the woman in Germany? I don't know. I would like to say no. I would like to believe he's innocent, but I'm not 100% sure either way. Well, the way I look at it is if you're capable of killing one person, you're capable of killing Oh, absolutely. Many. So Hurdle is the first one. Right. So if he killed her, then I would say, well, he killed his wife. Do you think that his wife knew that he was taking gay lovers? Or do you think that was a surprise? I feel like when I watched it, Mm -hmm. I felt like she might have kind of suspected, but didn't want to address it. Mm -hmm. 
And then after I watched the whole thing, I thought, well, maybe she didn't know. I'm not sure why I flipped, and maybe I'd have a different opinion if I rewatched it. Because that would be a motive to have a fight, at least. Oh, absolutely. If she found out, you know, that he was hiring gay prostitutes, and then a fight ensued, and then she died that night, I would say that's pretty suspect. True. I kind of think maybe she knew. I think there's all kinds of relationships, you know? All kinds of definitions of what a relationship looks like. And just because maybe you or I would not necessarily want our partners having gay lovers, I don't think that maybe everybody would feel that way. Some people may not care. Some people may be very open about that. Yeah, I feel like a lot of people are willing to put up with certain things that other people are not willing to. Right. That might not have been a deal breaker for her. Who knows? But yeah, that's a good one. Well, I've got one more psychic detective case to share with you. Okay. And this is the case of Elizabeth Cornish. In the early morning hours of August 8, 1987, Elizabeth Cornish, a 42-year-old nurse and mother of five from Belvedere, New Jersey, was awoken from her sleep, sexually assaulted, and then bludgeoned to death with a hammer in her own bed. She'd been struck repeatedly in the head, and the room was covered in blood spatter. The entire room was covered in blood from the viciousness of the attack. Lieutenant Detective Dave Heater from the Warren County Prosecutor's Office said there were a couple of potential suspects and one of them was a man named John Reese. John was a 31-year-old farmer who lived in the apartment right above Elizabeth. He was asked to take a polygraph test and he complied and he passed the test. He also had a solid alibi for the time of the death. Now, despite this, something still seemed off about John, and detectives were not thoroughly convinced that he was not their guy. At the same time, investigators were also suspicious of Elizabeth's boyfriend, who had actually found her body. However, Elizabeth's family said there was no way that her boyfriend was capable of doing something like this. Since they couldn't nail anyone down for the crime, Detectives, along with Elizabeth's sister, requested help from a psychic, and the psychic's name was Nancy Weber. Now, Nancy had known she was psychic since her childhood. She said she was about two and a half years old when her mother had a visitor over. Nancy looked at the guest and saw a little thing in her belly. She said that she heard a voice tell her, it's a baby. So Nancy pointed to the woman and said, baby. The woman looked at Nancy's mother in disbelief and said that she had not even told her husband that she was pregnant. How in the world could Nancy have known? Nancy continued to see things happening to her friends and family, earning her the nickname Little Witch. She said that she would know when a family member died at the very moment of their death. When Nancy was 19, she became a nurse, and by the time she was 27, she was working in an experimental acute psychiatric unit in the Bronx. She really enjoyed the work and she was able to figure out the root cause of a person's psychosis just through her psychic ability. She said she could take a catatonic who'd been locked away for decades and in 30 minutes, he'd be chatting with her. Eventually, Nancy decided to quit her job as a nurse and work as a psychic full time. When Detective Heater found out that Nancy was going to be the psychic working on this case, he was really excited because he'd worked with her before. He was very open to working with psychic detectives because on a previous case he had worked on, a different psychic detective was able to pinpoint which barrel out of 150 barrels contained a body. 
so he was a believer. Nancy had not been told anything about any potential suspects, but she immediately said that Elizabeth's boyfriend was not the killer. Nancy was brought to Elizabeth's first floor apartment and before she even entered the apartment, she was just standing on the landing. She said that she looked up and said, the murderer lives upstairs. Nancy had not been told anything about any potential suspects, but she immediately said that Elizabeth's boyfriend was not the killer. Nancy was brought to Elizabeth's first floor apartment and before she even entered the apartment, she was just standing on the landing. She said that she looked up and said the murderer lives upstairs. Now police made sure to bring Nancy over when Reese, the suspect who lived in that upstairs apartment, would not be home. He was at work. Nancy continued to walk through the crime scene and she kept saying that the evil was upstairs and that whatever happened came from upstairs. When she got to the bedroom, she described the rape and murder in detail. After the crime scene walkthrough, detectives and Nancy went back to the station to discuss what Nancy believed happened. She laid it all out and she told the detectives that Elizabeth had been killed around 3 a.m. Detectives told her that was incorrect. Elizabeth had died around 11, but Nancy kept insisting that she died at 3 a.m. She described a man with reddish-brown hair who was about 5'10 and had a facial scar on his right cheek. She said he also wore a large Western-style belt buckle. Nancy also drew a sketch of some woods and water and said that this is where the murder weapon would be found. She continued to say that there was a man upstairs and then she said his first name is John and stated that his last name begins with the letter R and is a single syllable. She said that's him. Detectives told her there was a suspect by the name of John Reese, but that he had already passed a polygraph, that he did not have a facial scar, and he did not wear a large belt buckle. And this right here is all that I need to know to know that I would have loved this woman. She told the detectives that they were blind. And she said, you need to go talk to him again. Nice. Mm -hmm. So talk to him again they did. And this time they noticed that Reese had a facial scar and was wearing a large western style belt buckle. Of course he was. Of course he was. However, that didn't change the fact that he had passed the polygraph and he still had this solid alibi for 11 the time the coroner believed Elizabeth had died. A few days later, the coroner re-examined Elizabeth's body and changed the time of death to around 3 a.m. No way. Yes. After further questioning, Reese's story started changing and it became obvious that he was lying. Investigators determined that he was originally able to pass the polygraph because they had asked all the wrong questions based on the incorrect time of death. He eventually ended up confessing. He said that he had murdered Elizabeth with a hammer and then thrown the hammer into some woods near the farm where he worked. The location matched Nancy's diagram. Police combed the area and lo and behold, they found a hammer with human blood on it. However, I did read two conflicting statements here. The first, I read a report that the hammer had been ruled out as the murder weapon as it did not match the wound patterns. And the second report I read stated that the human blood on the hammer was not Elizabeth's, but there was no further testing done. So according to that report, we still don't know if the hammer was involved in this murder. Nevertheless, John Reese was sentenced to life in prison for Elizabeth 
Cornish's murder. Wow. That's amazing how they can do that. Isn't that amazing? Yes. It really is. What a gift. Pretty interesting. And I love that the detective that worked with her really appreciated and was willing to work with her again. You know, oh, like he was excited to work with her. Yes. Like, oh, yeah, this girl's coming back. Yeah, for sure. Well, it probably makes their job a lot easier Yeah, when they're given these, like, obscure hints. And it turns out to lead them in the right direction. Absolutely. You'd have to be, like, really closed-minded, I think, to not want any kind of help you could get. Right. So, yeah, that's awesome. It is. For sure. Yeah. Das is good. Ooh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you just reminded me. Okay, so you know Elf on the Shelf? Of course. Okay. So, our Elf on the Shelf, you have to name name them. Okay. And ours is named Krakenwagen. Krakenwagen. Okay, what does that mean? Okay, so it's German for ambulance. <laughs> okay. And what makes it so funny, and like this joke in our house, my husband is German. Our last name is Hunnefeld. And originally in German, it was pronounced Hunfeld. Hunfeld. Okay. So, you know, we love, you know, just going around saying Hunfeld. Um, <laughs> but there's this YouTube video, and it's like, it's making fun of, like, German. So it's, um, it'll take all these words and say them in all these different languages and then say them in German. So it's like, butterfly. And, you know, the English will be like, butterfly. And then French will be papillon. And then, you know, they're, <laughs> and like so, they're angry about everything. <laughs> yes. And so for like ambulance, it's like, um, you know, English is ambulance. And French is ambulance. And German, Krakenwagen. <laughs> <laughs> and then like the hospital, Krakenhaus, Krakenhaus. Like, it's just this really, like, everything is just so like, harsh and okay. so it's this hysterical you've got to watch it on I youtube will. it's so funny and we just our whole family will laugh and laugh at that so when it came time for us to name our elf on the shelf but yeah kraken wagons are our elf's name i love it it's so cute so unique yeah it's fun yeah Thanks for listening, everybody. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram where you can see corresponding photos that go along with our cases. And leave a comment. Yes, if you have any questions for us or cases that you want us to cover or anything like that, feel yeah. free to reach out. We'd love to have a little interaction with you. Yeah, we can read your questions and answer them on the air. <gasps> we can. We will. Q&A. Absolutely. So that'd be awesome. And if you'll rate us, leave us reviews, do anything you can to help get us out there, that'd be awesome. We'd so appreciate it. Absolutely. So thanks for listening. My name is Cynthia and I'm your host. And my name is Paula. And we are... Dolls and Doom. Bye. Bye.